glory. My family sat down here not too long ago and watched the iconic Back to the Future movies at our house. Now, they're rated PG, but my wife and I had forgotten how crass movies in the 80s could be. So I don't know how much I recommend them to especially young children. The language and the innuendos gave us pause. But there was a repeated phrase in the movies that was really quite interesting. When something was amazing or shocking in the movies, the main character or characters would say, that's heavy. Now that might have been some 80s phrase, I don't remember it. Those were the days I grew up. But it is this pause before they said that and the associated awe that describes the biblical term glory. In fact, in Hebrew, glory means something that is heavy or has weight to it. And when you say the term glory, it's because of the heaviness that it puts on you because of shock and awe. And it's this that we ascribe to God, according to David in Psalm 29. Follow along as I read. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry, glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. This is a beautiful poem. Let us turn to the Lord briefly in prayer. Father, this is your word. Though the flowers fade and the grass withers, your word shall stand forever. We pray that you might give us ears to hear it and hearts to understand it, that we would not neglect you or your purpose or your promise. And Father, I pray that the things spoken here might be consistent with your word or else pass away and never be heard from again. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We live in the southeast. Even though many of us here in this room were not from the southeast originally, you now are here, and if you've been here long enough, you know that this is SEC football country. And when a last-second touchdown is scored by the home team underdog, by the star quarterback and an unlikely receiver, the crowd goes wild, and the fans might even stream down onto the field. After all, there are thousands of them. When the ball in a different sport is pitched in the ninth inning with two outs, 
The home team behind by just one or two runs, and the batter hits a game-winning, pennant-clinching home run. He lifts his arms to heaven, and he drinks in the moment, complete with the adulation of fans. Glory. We give glory to star athletes, to victorious generals, to powerful celebrities. But God gave each of those folks breath, and he can take it away. You see, truly, though, we tend to give glory to people and to people that really have nothing to do with true glory, God alone, the creator, the sustainer, the provider, deserves, displays, and dispenses glory. David tells us in these first three verses, or first two verses, rather, three times the word ascribe or give. The word ascribe is kind of an interesting word in the English language because it means to basically give credit where credit is due. So when the translators chose this particular term, ascribe, they're saying that the Lord, Yahweh, deserves what you're about to give him according to these verses. The Lord deserves glory. Oh, heavenly beings, this word for heavenly beings, or two words actually, means sons of might. It's interesting. In other places, you might see the term sons of God, but this is actually a different word. It looks much like the word for God, but it is a different word that can mean strength or might, depending on the way it is pointed in vocabulary. In other words, these sons of might, that is perhaps the heavenly beings, those who are surrounding the throne of God, are, cried, are, are described here to be those who need to give the Lord glory and strength. You see, they're to ascribe these things to him, glory and strength, glory repeated twice here, that is, in an understanding of his strength, that we are to give all of our strength to him, and we are to give glory to him, that shock and awe and wonder at who he is and what he has done. And so when we ascribe glory to him along with the sons of might, we are honoring his reputation, and we are honoring his character. This is who he is, the God of glory. This is what he has done in developing a reputation for all the heaven and the earth. It is due his name. That is his reputation. Why is it due his name? Because of all that he has accomplished on the earth for creating all things, judging his enemies, protecting his people, doing amazing things in creation. And then, of course, after the threefold ascribe, the author changes the verb from ascribe, ascribe, ascribe to this term, worship. The emphasis seems to be here, because after all, poetically, when you have repetition, the one word that is changed becomes the word of focus. And the word worship means to bow down or prostrate yourself before someone. And here it is, worship the Lord, 
capital L-O-R-D, Jehovah or Yahweh, the covenant God of his people, in the splendor of holiness. Worship him in holy attire. It's unclear here whether the author is saying that God has holy attire or whether the worshiper must have holy attire when he worships. We had a speaker here earlier this week. His name was Dr. Richard Phillips. And at one point in my conversations with him, he asked how people in Myrtle Beach at Faith Presbyterian Church dressed for worship. And I told him that I wear a suit, but I knew that people who came here at the beach wore anything from fancy clothes like suits to shorts and t-shirts. And he mentioned that when he pastored in Florida before his current pastorate, he used to drive them all crazy because he wore a suit every week. But the Lord drives people crazy in this. We must all be clothed in holiness. To worship God. You see, there is in fact no entrance to the heavenly temple without holy attire. In fact, without righteousness, we cannot enter God's presence. God is holy. We have just sung those words holy, holy, holy. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness because he is holy. He calls for us to be holy. And the only way that we can be holy is if we shed our lives of filth and sin, repent of those things, come to the Lord Jesus Christ for forgiveness, and receive his wonderful clothing, the robe of righteousness, that in holy attire, we might come and worship him. The Lord deserves glory. But the Lord also displays glory. Verses 3 through 9 repeat the phrase, the voice of the Lord. Now it's interesting, if you know the background of this particular psalm, it appears that this psalm was in response to those Canaanites who were in the land before and during the time of David, who worshipped a false god. The false god, particularly of the area that is described around Lebanon and Syrian, that god was a god you may be familiar with from the pages of the Old Testament. That god was Baal. He was known as the god of the storm in some cases. And so there was a picture that was illustrated with this particular god. This particular God was worshipped by his adherents in this way, that this, this God was pictured as a mighty warrior holding in one hand a spear of flashing lightning and in the other hand a club of thunder. And it was indicated that there would be seven peals of thunder from this God to bring rain and storms upon the earth. When David writes this psalm, perhaps having this in mind, he writes seven times, not the peals of thunder from Baal, but seven times of the voice of the Lord. You see, time and again in Scripture, 
we see that God is described here as a God above all other gods and that these other gods, including Baal, are really nothing. They are false gods and God prevails over them. So this God, who was supposed to be the God of the storm, instead, David says, our God, the true God, the God of Israel, the Lord, is God even over the storm. In fact, Charles Spurgeon says this particular psalm, unlike some of the others that are to be read in times of peace or contemplation, this psalm is to be read in the time of, and he used this word, I can't even pronounce it, equinoctoral tornado. In other words, right in the midst of the day when a great storm comes at the equinox of the day and everything looks dark and the lightning is striking and the thunder is loud and everything seems to be fearsome and awesome, that is when you read this psalm. Because the Lord displays his glory in this way. God's very word, the voice of the Lord, prompts the storm. The Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. You see, this voice of the Lord is a thunderous voice. It is a voice that is greater than the thunder itself. It is a voice that can bring upon the storm, upon the people, the storm that can humble them. It is a powerful voice. Verse 4 says the voice of the Lord is powerful. In other words, his voice, God's word, is so powerful that it can bring a storm into being. It is also a splendorous voice. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty or splendor. You see, what he's saying here, David is saying, is that whatever storm comes to be, even the most powerful and mightiest storms, particularly thinking here in their context, the great Mediterranean Sea and the storms that might come into the land, God is behind them. In fact, to this day, though weathermen like to predict the storms, they cannot control them, can they? God himself is in control of our weather. Whether it's a beautiful 80 degrees in a February day at the beach or whether it is the midst of the eye of a hurricane, whatever it is, God is the one by the mere sound of his voice can prompt the storm. But God also powers the storm. You see verses 5 and 6 and 7 remind us particularly of the power of these storms here in the Mediterranean basin and particularly as it gets the northern area just north of Israel and the land of Canaan. As he powers the storm, it says the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Of course, this is symbolic for the strength of Lebanon. In fact, it is the cedars of Lebanon that Solomon would get to build the temple. They were the strong and mighty and beautiful woodwork that would be part of the beauty and the power and the strength of a building to worship God in. But God, with the snap of his fingers and the sound of his voice, can make even these powerful cedars come smashing down. He smashes or is smashing the cedars in the storm. 
Then verse 6 says, he makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. If you're like me and you first read these words, you're thinking of the place Lebanon. But there is a mountain called Lebanon, and Syrian is actually a reference to Mount Hermon. These were two of the mountains in the great mountain range in the north in that area. Some of these mountains in the mountain range were as much as 10,000 feet above sea level. And when he says this, that they were skipping like calves, he's basically saying God's storm and its power can cause the shifting of the mountains. In other words, these symbols of strength, first of all, the trees, you know, they're not those little cedars that we used to think of in northeast Tennessee where they just sprout up and they're annoying uh, little more than than tough weeds to pull out of the ground. These were the the majestic and powerful, tall and mighty cedars. And God can smash them in the storm. And then if you think that's not enough, the symbolic mountains, the rocks that are so strong, the mountains of the earth, God can cause them to skip, it says, like the young wild ox or like a calf. He can cause them to shift. The nation of Turkey and the nation of Syria saw that in the earthquakes just a little bit ago. The shifting of the mountains. Not only that, verse 7 reminds us of the power of a storm. I remember here just a couple summers ago, lightning struck out here on uh, the outside part of the building, and we saw the places where the lightning had gone out of the corners of the facing of our uh, portico out there, and I thought the power that was there, it knocked out some of our equipment here at the church. There was lightning that struck our sister church down in Surfside, and it knocked out lots of things and caused them to call the fire department. It caused some damage that they just now recently repaired the last of their damage. You see, in God's storm, he can be splitting the flames. This is the forked lightning that's come across. And isn't it awesome to smell the lightning and to see the forked flames that go across the sky and to know that that lightning has more power than our biggest electrical energy that we have in our buildings. God's word powers the storm. And then we get to verse 9 and verse 8. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. You see, the Lord not only prompts the storm by his very word, he not only powers the storm by his word, but he can pacify the storm in his word. You see, it's depicting that storm going from the Mediterranean, the Lord, over the waters, over to the the places of population among the forests and among the mountains, and then going out into the wilderness, reverberating throughout the desert Because the storm is dissipating and losing momentum. As it goes forth into the wilderness, the wilderness shakes at the voice of the Lord. The wilderness of Kadesh, we don't really know where that is. Some would say it may even refer to far south in Kadesh Barnea, but I don't think, though, there's a Kadesh around the Orants in that territory, the mountainous region that Lebanon and Syrian is on. I think it refers to basically a place that 
is describing the wilderness outside the mountain range or as it goes off into the valleys. And here it is so strong. This storm as it dissipates can even cause the things of nature to go wild. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. You see, it causes premature birth in animals. Nature can do that. Forest fires caused by lightning can do that. Earthquakes or other distress can cause those things in animals. Whether or not that second phrase, strips the forest bare, is the translation or is another way to describe kids or goats giving birth prematurely seems to be a debate over the meaning of this particular phrase. Whatever the case, it describes the fact that even as the nature and creation that God has created looks at the power of the storm and the aftermath of what has taken place, it can cause such shock and awe that even... A mother animal will give birth early because of what has taken place. You see, God's word that prompts this storm, God's word that powers this storm, and in the end, it's only God's word that can pacify the storm. God's word also provokes awe. This is where David writes, and in his temple, all cry glory. So this picture, the sevenfold voice of the Lord, is to show the might and the power of the storms that God can bring upon the earth, either literally or figuratively. We think of the great flood that came. We think of the great plagues that came upon Egypt. We think of the mountains and and the storm and the lightning and the voice of God on Mount Sinai. We think of all of the wonder of the hail that would destroy the armies of God's enemies during the time of the kings. And heaven is looking down upon the things that God is doing in all of those times by the word of his power. And they see the storm and they see its effects and they see how it has dissipated by God's command and all they can do is sit back and pause and say together, glory. The little town of Lemon, South Dakota from which I moved to come to Myrtle Beach, right before we moved there, a church was started in that town. It began in the local mo- in the local movie theater, a tiny theater, but it had a stage. And the young pastor who started it got bright lights. He got projectors and all kinds of the ability to make great sounds and lights. And he bought a smoke machine. And with loud music and smoke blowing across the stage in the right atmosphere during their Sunday worship services, he was trying to create something that already existed. He was trying to create a place and an atmosphere where people could see the glory. And yet it's God's word that does this. If you understand what the author is saying, the voice of the Lord, the voice of the Lord, seven times, perhaps in the response of the Canaanite worship features, or perhaps 
in response to the understanding that seven is a complete or full number in some ways. We don't know why seven. But as he says, the voice of the Lord, the voice of the Lord, the voice of the Lord, it reminds us that God's word provokes awe. It is the very word of God that created everything. Let there be light. And it was so. It's God's word that gave the law on Mount Sinai so that all the people in fear said to Moses, you go up the mountain, we can't. It is the word that came in flesh and dwelt among us and walked upon the earth with power and dominion over the sea and the storm so that at a very command, the wind stopped. And the waves were stilled. It is the word that reveals the character and works of God himself. We don't create the environment. We don't do all the things to create the glory of God. The glory of God is right here. It is here. And then the Lord dispenses glory to his people. Verse 10 says this. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. You see, the Lord dispenses glory in his reign as king. First of all, reference here to the deluge, a reminder of the flood. You know that flood. That flood in the book of Genesis in which all the world was judged, only eight people were in the ark, and as the flood came and the waters covered the earth, every last breathing soul died on the face of the earth, but the eight that were in the ark. And it says here that when this took place, God was sitting on his throne reigning as king. But it wasn't just then. It's forever. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. There are those in our culture asking today, who's in charge? What's going on? There's such a chaotic movement in our society around us, doesn't it not seem like there's no one in charge? There's nothing that is able to stem the tide of evil and wickedness. And yet we see in this verse a reminder, God is king. Not a mayor, not a governor, not a president, not a dictator, not somebody else, not a judge. God is king. The Lord is king forever. He is reigning even now, permitting what is taking place, awaiting the time when our nation, like all the others, will be judged. He reigns as king and dispenses his glory. He also dispenses glory in his role as savior Verse 11 is the one thing that is requested here of God. Although, in a sense here, you could also translate this as something he will do. It's not really a question. It's not, will he do this? It's saying, he will do this. The Lord will give strength to his people. I was reminded again this week that strength comes from the Lord. You know, it's been a long couple of weeks. I've had meetings or worship services or other things almost every night for two weeks. 
And of course, that combined with the trip overseas and back, teaching and so forth, and then of course, having teenagers in the house and sports season coming up in the spring, things going on at school with my wife, things going on at church. It got to be an exhausting couple of weeks or even a month. And yet, how is it that we can stand and preach and teach and do the things that God causes us to do? It's because God gives the strength. Every time I speak with someone facing death, maybe it's their own mortality because of disease or difficulty, or perhaps it's the loss of someone close to them. You see, every time we go through those times, it sometimes feels as if we cannot continue. And the world around us thinks that. In the year 2020, there were 20,000 overdose deaths in our nation. Last year, there were 100,000. And those are the ones who died. Overdose is at a record high, and not only that, but the use of drugs to dull our pain and cause an escape and worship the effects of that is at an all-time high. Because they feel as if they don't have the strength to face reality. And once they imbibe in these things, they don't feel they have the strength to escape the allure of the effects of the drug. Or perhaps they started to begin with because they could not help the pressures to partake. Where does strength come from for God's people? in the midst of despair, in the midst of a world that says there is no hope, a place in which they say there's no strength to go on unless we have a drug to dull our pain. Strength comes to God's people from the God of glory, the king who reigns forevermore, and the savior who will not only give his people strength, but he will bless them with his peace. This is the other thing. Why is it the people at some point resort to these types of things, drugs and so forth? Perhaps you've been in that place at times thinking that maybe if I just did these things, maybe you did these things in these times. Maybe you had some other way to to dull the ache of the hurt that you're experiencing or perhaps the hopeless feeling you had about the future, the things that depress us and get us down. What can give us peace The Lord can give the peace that passes all understanding. Paul writes, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You see, what does this psalm really tell us? It tells us that from the power and clash of lightning and thunder to the devastating effects of the great flood, God displays his glory. From the plagues of Egypt to the poetry of David, God's glory puts false gods of any stripe to complete shame. From the Father's mighty acts in the pages of Old Testament history to Jesus Christ's powerful miracles during the time he walked the face of the earth to now the time of the Spirit's miraculous salvation and building of the church The very word of God is more powerful than the greatest storms we face in the world around us. 
God is the God of glory to whom we all cry. Glory, glory to God Almighty who is our Savior and our King. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the God of glory. Lord, we tend to give glory to others who do not deserve it. We tend to give glory to our idols and those things that we turn to to dull our aches and our pains. We tend to give glory to athletes and celebrities who do not deserve it. We tend to bow down and worship those who are your servants rather than the creator, you yourself, the one who has made all things, and Lord, who saves his people. Father, help us, Lord. Forgive us of those times when we have given glory to another. And help us, give us the strength in good times and bad, in weak times and in strong, to give you the glory.